All right, good morning. Uh, so how many of you in your small groups actually did week one of our Psalm 23 study this week? Let's see, yeah, did you guys enjoy it? Yeah, we started it in our small group uh, this week too. By the way, my name's Matt, uh, I'm Matt Rumba. My wife, Christy, and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills. Let me hear it. That was terrible. Come on, people, what are you doing? Yeah, there we go. Uh, and I, I also happen to serve as one of the elders here. So yeah, we started this study this week. Uh, and I really, just, just a simple truth, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We had a really great conversation about if the Lord is our shepherd, that means he is with us. He's not a God far away that I have to figure out where he is. He is with us to guide us and lead us. So if you're not any, already in a small group, I want to reiterate Jeff's plug. Find a small group. We have a place for you. We're going to be doing this study with Matt Chandler in Psalm 23 for the next six weeks all together as a church family. And this is a great way for you to get plugged in, start building some community, and just really simple truths from God's Word that I think will be helpful to you. All right, so this morning, though, we're not going to be in Psalm 23. We're actually going to be in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And this is the first of a six-part series that we're going to be doing about our so-called six pursuits. So last week was a very big day. Uh, we announced our new name, or we launched our new name. I guess we told you it was coming a few months ago. Uh, but we also clarified what our mission statement is. It's new, not new, kind of new. It's, it's the same mission, but we changed the words a little bit so that we can be clear about who we are and what it is we're called to do here in Northern Virginia. And as Jeff mentioned last week, and we're starting today, each of the next six weeks, we want to take one of these six pursuits that enable us to do our mission and sort of uh, digest that, talk about what it means, what, you know, what does this term mean, and then how does that actually help us do our mission? So today, we're going to be on this topic of fervent prayer. We'll come back to that in a second, but let's put this on the screen. These are our six pursuits. These are the things that we do to pursue missions. So today, we'll be doing fervent prayer. Uh, the second is bold preaching, then passionate worship, purposeful disciple-making, courageous evangelism, and strategic church planting. So over the, next, uh, over the next six weeks, we'll take these one at a time, again, explain what this is and how it helps us do mission right here in Fairfax as God's church. So today, fervent prayer. What does that mean? And how does that relate to our mission? All right, so it's kind of a lazy tool for a speaker to start with a definition. You know, with these poor English teachers, how many English teachers have read papers that start with, according to Webster's, the definition of marshmallow is blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a lazy way, but give me a little bit of grace because I do think it's important that we all understand the terminology in the same way. So fervent prayer, what does that mean? Well, the word fervent means having or displaying a passionate intensity having or displaying a passionate intensity. Now, I am a man of a certain age. I'm 46 years old, and you, know, you can look at me. I'm a white guy, I'm Northern American, all that. And so that word passion sometimes makes me a little nervous because I expect that it has maybe like an, a, an emotional sort of demonstration element to it that, you know, I'm, I'm a little more reserved. I'm a little more introverted. When I take these scales, most of which I don't actually believe in, but when I take these scales, I always tip on that introverted side a little bit. Uh, and so if somebody expects me to be passionate, I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not into that too much. But turns out I had the wrong idea about what passionate 
uh, actually means. And so it's helpful for me to understand this, so I hope it's helpful for you too. I started doing some research on this, and it turns out passion, the way that researchers talk about it, in fact, there's a, a particular researcher, his name is Robert Valorand. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He talks about a dualistic mode of passion. Did I say that right? Yeah, dualistic model of passion. Turns out there's not just one type of passion, this like all-out, external, demonstrative thing. There's, there's two ways. They work together. The first of which he describes is what he refers to as harmonious passion. And this is the uh, type of passion that reflects what you desire on the deepest level, your, what you like to do, the kind of thing that you would do even if you had no other motivation to do that. Um, it's based on extrinsic motivation. It is process-oriented. So think about something like gardening. You know, if you like to, unless you're a farmer or some sort of, uh, you know, official sort of food seller or something like that. I don't know what the right term is. Uh, you know, if you like to garden, you just like to garden, right? You like to get down in the weeds. You like to pull it. You like to ma manage the soil, all those. You're intrinsically motivated to do that. And it's, uh, you like the process of it. If you're a gardener who only likes pulling out the carrots at the end of it, well, you're probably a terrible gardener because it takes a lot of work to do that. You got to do it every day over time. Now, over time, this type of passion, harmonious passion, is closely correlated with satisfaction and meaning and happiness. Now, that is compared to this type of passion that uh, Valorant refers to as obsessive passion. And this is more external. This is more ex uh, extrinsically motivated or outcome-oriented. Uh, and so think about a, an Olympic athlete. And how many stories have we seen about how they put a picture of a gold medal up on their wall and they touch it every time they leave the room? Or, you know, they have some sort of external goal that drives them to achieve that. So the problem is, is over the long term, this isn't quite as sustainable. It's correlated with high rates of burnout and depression and anxiety. So the, what the research points out is that the, the highest performing athletes find ways to blend these together. So that you blend the harmonious so that you have the day-by-day -day thing that's you know, sort of intrinsic motivation with an external goal that motivates your achievement a little bit. So a good example, I think, maybe it wouldn't resonate with you, but I think it's, think about Olympic swimmers. Swimming is the kind of sport where you have to practice every day to be good at it, otherwise there's no point of it. But it's also the kind of thing where if you don't actually have some sort of outcome in mind to achieve, why would you do this terrible thing every day? I actually knew somebody in college. I went on a, a trip with a, a, a pretty accomplished swimmer. She was a varsity swimmer at Ohio State. Ohio State, Jeff. Uh, her name was Holly Ann Humphrey. And it turns out she was actually kind of a big deal. She was all Big Ten. Uh, and she's in the Ohio State Hall of Fame for what that's worth. But I remember asking her that summer. This is 1994. And I said, Holly, why... Uh, what, shouldn't you be getting ready for the Olympics? You're a really accomplished swimmer. And she said, Matt, if I wanted to go to the Olympics, I wouldn't be here. This is two years before the uh, Atlanta Olympics. And she said, now, if, if I wanted to go to the Olympics, I'd have to be in the pool right now. So these two things come together in a model of passion. Ex, uh, the harmonious, so this thing that I enjoy doing, I'm willing to do it every day, plus the obsessive. I have a gear that I go to when the moment really calls for it. This is a pretty good picture of what we mean when we say fervent prayer. And so I want to give you an example of that today. We're going to be looking at an example uh, from a guy named Daniel. Uh, some of you are very familiar with Daniel, of course. There's a book in the Bible named for him. Daniel uh, was a Jewish man, and somewhere around the year 605, he was living in Jerusalem. He's a very young man at this point. He is actually captured uh, by a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. He is sent to a faraway land. 
uh, Babylon, and he is put into the king's service. He learns new language. He learns new customs. He's made an administrator, and uh, he is part of this exile that lasts for the better part of 70 years. Daniel, as far as we know, never returns to his homeland. Uh, And so in this, he actually thrives. He becomes a very high-level government official. In fact, there's some reason to indicate that he's second only to the king. He has uh, the ability to translate dreams. He's a man of great wisdom. He's a great man of integrity. So the book of Daniel is a little bit weird. I think a lot of us are familiar with some of the stories in it. So if you know the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the the fiery furnace, Daniel himself, and there's a picture of it right here in the lion's den. We're going to circle back to that in a second here. So uh, nice stories that we learn when we're in Sunday school, but then there's this other side of the book where like very strange apocalyptic dreams, sort of the the closest I ever want to have to a psychedelic experience. Very, very strange language, but sort of toward the end of the book, there's this beautiful prayer. That's going to be where we focus our time tonight as we learn about this thing called fervent prayer. So as we look at this, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. Uh, Daniel at this point is an old man. He's lived his life. He's very accomplished. Uh, and so the, one of the themes in the book of Daniel is how do you live uh, faithful as a person in exile? So Daniel is from the, the Jewish homeland, Israel. He now lives in Babylon. Everything in Babylon wants him to take on that culture. Everything about Babylon wants him to worship that set of gods, to do those religious practices. But we're told that Daniel remains faithful. So he lives in this gap between what is and what should be. I'm going to let that sit there a second. Does Northern Virginia maybe feel like that a little bit? This gap between what is and what should be? You know, if you spend any time reading your Bible, you're like, ooh, wait a minute, life is not supposed to be like this. You know, I go to this job and it's a drag and traffic is a nightmare and people are cruel and I, I'm just trying to change lanes and somebody honks at me and, and all these things. This gap between what is and what should be is where Daniel lives and I think he has a lot to say for us today. So that said, Daniel is a man of fervent prayer. In fact, we're told that he prays three times a day. In fact, that gets him in trouble. That's how he ends up in the lion's den, because his political enemies know that this is true about him. They want to get him out of the way, so they talk the king into passing a law that you can't pray to anyone other than the monarch. Well, Daniel's not going to ditch his, his prayer life. He actually flings the door open, prays just as he does. That's what gets him in trouble and putting the lion's den. And of course, you know the story. God delivers him, and it turns out his enemies are the ones who gets eaten by the lion. So I think Daniel has a lot to teach us about fervent prayer. We're going to look in uh, chapter 9. Let me read a couple verses here, and then we'll pull up and see what God has for us today. So in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahuserus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So there's a couple things going on. One is we get our setting. So as we said, Daniel was exiled in the year 605. This is roughly 68 years later. So he's an old man. He's well into his 80s. There's been a change in monarch. The old king was Nebuchadnezzar. He has been overthrown. It's now a group of Persians are in charge, but they love Daniel so much, they just left him where he was. And so he's still thriving. He's still doing great, even though there's been a change of monarch. But Daniel has come upon the scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah. 
he takes a look at them. Specifically, he looks at uh, what we would know as uh, chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, and he sees a prophecy there that, that God gave to Jeremiah that this time of exile where he's going to force the, uh, the Jewish people out of their homeland uh, and scatter them abroad, and that's going to last for a period of 70 years. So as Daniel's looking at this, he's like, okay, one, two, three, four, six, 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 68. And he's like, oh, we're coming to the end of this. We're getting close to this moment. And that drives him to pray. And so this is important. This is important. We want to realize the first thing about fervent prayer is that it's anchored in God's word. God's word tells us who to pray to. It tells us what to pray for. It gives us a reality of prayer that helps us commune with God, understand who God is and what it is that he wants of us. It's the way by which we see what prayer is all about. Think about going to the movies. Maybe you want to go see one of these big blockbusters and you want to go see the 3D version of it. I assume it still works this way. I don't go to the movies anymore, but they give you a pair of glasses, right? Is that how it works, Brian? That's still how it works, right? Oh, okay, Some, somebody will tell me if I'm wrong here, but yeah, thanks, JT. Uh, yeah, so if you go watch a 3D movie and you don't have the glasses, then everything on the screen is, is just a complete blur to you, right? So if you want to see what's going on, you've got to put on the glasses. That's what makes it 3D to you. The Word of God is what does that for prayer for us. We know what prayer is. We understand it when we anchor it in God's Word. It's like putting on the 3D glasses so we can actually see who to pray to, what to pray for, what we're even doing in prayer. And in fact, we're, we're not going to read these passages just yet. We'll, we'll get to them in a second. But the next thing that Daniel starts to pray for, all of these things are littered with references to the Word of God. He uses the term great and awesome God to refer to God. That's a throwback to uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 21. He talks about how God keeps covenant love. That's language also from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. He refers to the activity of the prophets who came to, uh, to share news to kings and princes and leaders. He's calling out Jeremiah chapter 44 verses 4 and 5. And I know I'm littering these at you. If, if you really want to write these down, come see me afterward. He uh, refers to something called the Lord's righteousness. That's also Jeremiah 33 verse 16. And then he goes through this list of curses that the Jewish people are under for their failure to keep the covenant. That is straight from Deuteronomy chapter seven, uh, 27, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 28. There's a long list of the covenant terms that God had made with his people Israel. If you do this, I'm going to bless you. If you don't do this, then this is the curse for it. That passage in, in Deuteronomy enumerates those, and Daniel refers to that in the text that we're about to look at. So everything that Daniel is praying here is anchored in the word of God. He's not telling God anything that God already doesn't know. He's also not coming to this with his own reality. He has anchored this in the word of God. He knows who to pray to. He knows what to pray for because he has meditated on God's word. He has studied God's word. He has internalized God's word. You see this? This is really important. Everybody with me? Cool. All right. So uh, fervent prayer is anchored in the word of God, who he is, and it is dominated by adoration of him. And this isn't because God needs the reminder. We do. We need the reminder of who he is and what to pray for. The second thing that we're going to see, and I'm going to read this, is that it is saturated in confession. So let's read together. Uh, verse 3. 
Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I pray to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, those... Oh, I lost my place here. Uh, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." And now, O Lord our God, you brought, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So I don't know if you were counting. I imagine you weren't. Maybe you were, though. There are 32 instances of confession in that passage. That's what, not even 10 verses, 32 times he uses the language of confession. So as he comes to God and he understands the moment that he is, he understands that he is part of a people who has blown it. They have screwed up. They have disobeyed. Things that they should have known better about, they did not do. It's very clear from the book of the law of Moses. It's very clear from the prophets. Don't do these things. God has called you into a covenant. Do this and you'll be blessed. If you don't do these things, God is, go is going to curse you. And that's the moment. And Daniel just rolls it all out. God, you said do this. We didn't do it. You said don't do this. We did do it. And some examples of what he's talking about is things like child sacrifice. God specifically told them, don't borrow the practice of the, the nations that are around you where they sacrifice their children to false gods. Uh, putting up idols, you know, building statues of false gods and worship, worshiping them. God told his people, don't do that. They did it. Also, there's a litany of things where God said, don't do it, and they did it. Now, what's interesting is Daniel uses we statements all throughout this, not they statements. That's really important for us. Now, Daniel has every right to, to say they screwed up. Daniel hasn't even lived in Jerusalem. Daniel didn't have anything to do with putting up idols in the temple. He hasn't even been there for almost 70 years. 
And, and we're even told in other parts of Scripture that Daniel's a righteous man. In fact, there's actually a passage in the book of Ezekiel where God is looking for uh, someone to, to make a certain kind of sacrifice. And he's so angry at his people Israel in that moment that he said, even if Daniel were here to do this, I would not listen. So Daniel is like tippy top of the pyramid in terms of Old Testament figures who are blameless and righteous. He has every right to say those people screwed up, but he doesn't do it. He says we screwed up. We have sinned. We have disobeyed you. So I want to park here for just a couple minutes because I think there's a couple really important things for us. And one is this idea of collective ownership of sin. Now, I will admit right up front, this is not something that I am naturally comfortable with. So I'm a, I'm a man of a certain age. I grew up in a Protestant tradition. So I grew up specifically Southern Baptist. And in, in Baptist cultures, there's something called the priesthood of the believer. And so that is a doctrine that says, because of what Jesus has done for me, because of his, his death on the cross and his resurrection, I don't need any other mediator with God when it comes to my salvation. So I don't need a figure like a priest or, or somebody like that who has to sort of give me salvation on God's behalf. I can do business with God by myself. And that's true, and it's really important, but the thing is where I, I, I don't need a, a priest-like figure or I don't need anybody else for salvation, I do need other people to be a disciple. Do you guys see what I'm saying? There's a lot of commands in the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament where my obedience hinges on how I interact with people, how I love you all as my church family, how I love my wife and my children, how I interact with lost people all around me. There are commands in Scripture I can't be obedient to unless I live in community. So this idea of collective ownership for sin, it's a little bit strange to us maybe as Western believers in the 21st century. Now, that said, around the world, there are other cultures that don't struggle with this as much as we might. There are cultures even today where if you commit a crime, you're not the only one liable for it. Your family also, or your tribe maybe that you're a part of, is, is part of the justice process. So if I live in a certain culture and maybe I... Uh, maybe more dramatic than getting a speeding ticket, but I commit some crime. It's not just me who goes to court, my whole family, maybe even my whole tribe actually has to come to court with me and face justice. We don't do that in the United States for very good reasons. I believe in the Constitution, all those things. Somebody's gonna start calling me a communist. I'm not a communist, nothing like that. But this idea of collective ownership of sin, it's in the Old Testament and Daniel understands that much better than most of us probably do. So we statements when it comes to sin. So as we start to think about this in Northern Virginia, this might get interesting. I'm going hypothetical here for a second, so bear with me. But when I look around Northern Virginia, it might be easy for me to say, you know, those people, they're all so career motivated. They don't understand the love of God. Thankfully, we here at Fairfax Bible, we understand the love of God. So you, know, you see how that can quickly lead into self-righteous? But when I say something like, you know, Lord, you have rescued me and saved me, I can share your love out there with people who need to know you, with people who have wrong priorities, with people who, who don't understand this awesome life that you have for them. Maybe some, something even a little bit more serious, you know, uh, affordable housing turns out to be a, a really important issue here in Northern Virginia. You guys have probably noticed, you've been driving around, there are so many homeless people like on corners and, and looking for need. And uh, turns out the 
set of candidates that are running for the Board of Supervisors right now, our, our local legislative body, they all identify affordable housing as the most important issue in Northern Virginia right now. How easy would it be for me to just be like, ah, oh, those people on the street corner is driving me crazy. You know, they're always uh, panhandling for money. They don't take advantage of all these awesome systems that we have. I could easily make it a they statement, but it's a we statement. I live here too. I need to be part of the solution for that. Daniel understands this. I don't always understand this. I struggle with that. But Daniel says we when it comes to sin. He doesn't say they. And I think there's a lesson for that. There's another thing uh, why I think this is so important. And I'm going to get a little bit wonky on you for a second, so bear with me here. There's a, a group, Lifeway Publishing, uh, does a research study every couple years. They call it the Transformational Discipleship Assessment. So it's a research study that they do that looks at uh, discipleship within the church. And specifically, they look at inputs and outputs. So the output side of things is if, uh, like, serving Christ in my community or uh, sharing my faith with others or uh, you know, able to teach somebody else. They look at outputs that we're supposed to develop as uh, disciples of Jesus, and then they look at inputs. You know, read your Bible every day, join a small group, go to church every Sunday. And so their study looks at which outputs correlate with the which inputs. Does that make sense? It's a little bit hard to explain, but it's very researchy and wonky. They have PhDs doing this. They, it, they make it all work. Anyway, so one of the outputs that they look like that they look at is sharing my faith with others, with those who don't yet know God. Now, the number one input that correlates with that is reading my Bible every day. Now, reading your Bible every day is actually the number one input of all of their outputs. So just parenthetical here, if you're not already reading your Bible every day, you should read your Bible every day. If you're not already doing that, get your small group leader to help you. We'd love to do that. It impacts everything. But when it comes to sharing your faith, what is the number two input? The second most common predictor. Anybody want to guess? It's not prayer. It's related to prayer, but it's not prayer. It's confession of sins. The more I make a practice of confessing sin, the more likely I am to share my faith with those who don't know Jesus. Why would that be? I don't know. They don't actually explain it in the research. I read some of it. I couldn't find a reasonable explanation. So I'm guessing here, are you guys okay if I just take a stab at it? I'm guessing is that only when I understand how precious my salvation is, am I really motivated to share it with other people. Only when I really understand and take ownership of what Jesus has done for me, am I ready and eager to share it with someone else. Oh, uh, so, and the, the means by which I practice this is prayer. Now, yes, if I offend somebody, I should go to that person and seek forgiveness. And if somebody's offended me, I should go to them and explain it. You know, this is all laid out in the New Testament. But the, where this thing really, really happens is when I go to God and say, God, you are great. I am not. I have screwed up. And maybe I even borrow language from Daniel here. God, you warned us in your word. Don't do this, do that. I didn't do it. I blew you off, and I did what I wanted. When I make a practice of confessing sin, I'm more likely to share my faith with others. Do you think that has an impact on how we might do mission as Fairfax Bible Church? Yeah. We want to see lost people in our community come to know Jesus. We want to, them to experience forgiveness of sin, salvation, joy, peace, life, rest. We want all of that for the, all these people around us. And God's word, and it's backed up by research that tells us one of the ways that we're part of making that happen is regularly confessing sin. And fervent prayer is a means by which we do that. All right, 
So a couple, other, a couple of verses here, and Daniel really gets into it right here. Verses 16 through 19. Let's read these. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins, oh, because for our sins, and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate." Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So my voice was shaking there a little bit. I don't know if you could hear it. Can you hear Daniel's voice shaking as he prays this? He's anchored his prayer in the word of God. He's, he's confessed sin. He's put that before God so that it can be addressed. And only then does he go to God with his request. And his request is aimed at God's character and God's glory. And he goes to God and he says, it's right there in verse 18, God, we are not making this plea because of our righteousness. We have not gone through a self-help program to get ourselves together. We have not brought in consultants to tell us what we're doing wrong and what to do better. God, we blew it. Only you can fix this in your righteousness. And we want you to do it, not for our sake, not to get us off the hook or make up for what we've done, but because you are awesome. You know, a few months ago, I stood up here, and, or actually, I think it was in the cafeteria at the time, but we talked about the name of God. And we talked about God does what he does because he is who he is. It's in his very name that he does that. He always acts consistent with his character. And so one of the things that we, hear, we see here is God is merciful, and so Daniel is asking God to show mercy, not to, to get his people off the hook or even get himself off the hook. It's because God is merciful. He's gone right at the character of God. That's where his request comes from. And his request is not self-serving. It is for God's glory. We don't deserve this. We've done nothing to, to earn this, but we want to see your character on display for your glory. Does the thing that I'm asking for serve your purposes, serve your glory? And by the end here, you can see verse 19. Oh my God, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Can you, can you see him? He's probably flat on the ground. He's probably pounding the couch or table or whatever he's praying on. His voice is probably cracking. He's probably got tears dripping off his face. Friends, this is fervent prayer. He means it. He is deep in this moment. It is a very emotional reaction for him. Can you think of the last time you had a moment in prayer like that? It's probably not very often, and that's okay. I'm not trying to intimidate anyone or shame anyone. I'm not trying to say, if, this, if you don't pray like this every day, you're terrible at prayer. Don't, don't hear me say that. But sometimes prayer ought to feel like this, right? When there's a burden that we just can't shake, we might want to borrow some of Daniel's language here. Oh, Lord, hear. 
Oh, Lord, forgive. When there's a sin that we just constantly struggle with, we might want to borrow Daniel's language here. Oh, God, forgive, not because of my righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Daniel means it. He is in it deep. This is fervent prayer. This is passionate intensity. Daniel has built up a habit over his life of doing this at least three times a day, if not more. But when the moment calls for it, he can absolutely go to the mattresses on his face and his hands and his knees, plead with God in his character to show him mercy and kindness, to meet his request for God's glory, not ours. This is the kind of prayer that we want to be about as Fairfax Bible Church. We want to pray regularly. We want to pray habitually. And we want to pray with intensity that God would show his character, his glory, his plans, his purposes, his salvation to us, in us, and through us out to Northern Virginia and around the world. Because only he is what they really need. Only he is an answer to any prayer. Are you with me? Does this sound good? Can we just commit together? Is this the kind of prayer that we want to be about as a church? Yeah. Okay, Matt, how do I do this? Uh, I want to give you three quick tips, and I'm beholden to mention Tim Keller at this point. His book, Prayer, came out a few months ago. It is the best thing on prayer that I've ever read. You have my permission to get out your phone right now and order it. You're not getting out your phone. What are you doing? No, come on. Yeah, get it out. Go to Amazon, order it, have it delivered to your house like today. It is a tremendous read. He has any number of uh, uh, pieces of advice here. There are three that I've gleaned that I think are helpful for us. Uh, The first is we want to go for more frequent prayer, but maybe shorter lists. We want to go for intensity. So if you're already praying once a day, awesome. Great. Keep it up. Maybe think about a second time of prayer. Or maybe you have like one sort of primary uh, time during the day that you pray, maybe in the morning with coffee and and breakfast after you read your Bible. Maybe think about ways to add prayer in uh, during the course of the day. And the second thing on this element here is a shorter list. I think so many of us, maybe even thinking that we're doing the right thing, we come at our, our prayer time with a list maybe about this long or so. You know, we're praying for our aunts, uh, cousins, uh, next door neighbor's cat and things like that. And, and God bless the cats and, and aunts and neighbors and all those things. But a shorter list is a little bit closer to biblical prayer. Not that we shouldn't pray. It says pray about everything. Yes, all those things. But intense prayer, fervent prayer is about intensity. And so we want to have maybe shorter list, more frequent times of prayer. We want to go for intensity. The second, uh, hitting the theme here, we want to anchor that in the word of God. So if if we actually go through a time of prayer and we never mention God's word to him as we're praying, we're missing something. So Psalm 23, that we we had the video just a second second ago, that might actually be a great example. Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Pretty easy to turn that into a prayer. God, I don't always feel like you're my shepherd. I feel like I'm often wandering around doing my own thing. Help me be a good sheep. Help me to hear your voice and do what you say. I feel like I want a whole bunch of different things, but I want to want what you give me, Lord. See how easy it is to turn just one verse from the Psalms into a prayer. We want to make a habit of doing that. The Psalms are especially helpful for that. Almost all of them are prayers. You just open that up and be like, okay, I'm going to pray that. 
So if you need some help with that, find your small group leader. They will help you do it. The third one that I think is helpful, and this is especially important when it comes to this being part of our mission, and that is we want to interweave these. We want prayer to be interwoven with corporate prayer. So it's all well and good. In fact, it's fantastic. We want you all to be faithful in prayer on your own, individual. Do your daily prayer time. Pray about all you know, neighbors and cats and all those type things. But we, uh, prayer really has an impact when it's interwoven corporately. So I'm going to put a plug in for our prayer team, which meets faithfully every week. Uh, every week on the registers, when you write down your prayer requests at the bottom, our prayer team sees those and they pray for you. They are so faithful to do this. So I'm going to plug in. They can always use some more help. And the great thing about prayer, time, or prayer team is it doesn't take a ton of skill. If you can talk, you can pray. And if you can pray, you can be part of the prayer team. I'm also going to put a plug in for being open about your requests when you're a small group. And let your small group into your prayer life. And you get into their prayer life. In fact, one of the groups that I, uh, that I serve as coaching, they actually keep a text chain going through the week of what they're praying for. They check in with each other about, hey, I prayed for that thing today. How did that go? That's a great example of what we want to see. We don't want to just be lone rangers when it comes to prayer. We want to be doing this all together. We want to interweave these things together. So prayer team and, and, uh, and, and pray in your small group. Corporate prayer is really, really important, and that's, how, that's going to help us do mission better. All right, so let me sum up here. Fervent prayer, passionate intensity. We want it to be anchored in God's word. We want it to be saturated in confession, and we want it to be aimed at God's character and glory. And frankly, I can't think of a better way to do that than to move into a time of communion. So Phil and the band are going to come back up, and Jeff will come up in a minute and lead us. So before we do that, though, we do want to spend some time together. I'm going to let it just be quiet for a moment, and then I'll, I'll pray us out here. And Jeff's going to lead us, and so I don't want to step on his toes in, in, in this too much, but I really encourage you to just kind of let your mind and your heart settle. Think about what the Word of God says is true about you. If there's sin that you need to confess, whether to God or maybe even to somebody in this room, this is the time you can do that. And let's aim that prayer at God's glory and character. This is fervent prayer, and this is what we want to be as God's church here in Fairfax. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are righteous in all of your ways, and you are full of steadfast love and mercy. God, you are kind to us on a level that we do not deserve. And God, you know, I don't, I don't know what's on people's minds and hearts this morning. I, I know some of the burdens that I carry. And God, we just come before you and we plead with you. God, hear our prayer. Open your ears, incline your ear to us and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation that is all around us in our own lives and the communities that we live in. God, would you answer us? Not because we have it all figured out, we, we don't, uh, but because of your great mercy and kindness. God, we would love to see you do a great work here in Northern Virginia. Not because the name Fairfax Bible is, is anything special, uh, but because you are a great God. You want to rescue sinners. You want people to know your salvation. You want faithful disciples who are multiplying. And God, we want that too. We want people to know how great you are.
God, hear our prayer. God, I hope that this morning people are encouraged to pray. I certainly don't mean to intimidate anyone or shame anyone, but God, we wanna be people that pray with frequency and pray with intensity. So God, help us to not shortchange ourselves and help us to not shortchange you, but to ask you to do great things because you are a great God. So we give this time to you in the name of Jesus.